Welcome to the AFIRE podcast. As we continue to make real estate investments through the global pandemic, an important factor to consider in any due diligence is the resiliency of a given market. Which one will bounce back quickly? Which one will endure more of a struggle? Janth Ganesan, a real estate research analyst for Nuveen, recently wrote a piece for the AFIRE Summit summer issue called Resilient Cities, which uses their research to break down and compare how different metros are positioned to recover when this crisis recedes. And that's why I asked him to join me today to expand on his process and his findings and to give us an idea of how resiliency should fit in to our thinking. So, Jay, thank you for being a part of the AFIRE podcast. Thanks for inviting me, Gunnar. Happy to be here. So tell me, can you explain how you approach the assessment of comparative market resiliency and what you learned in the process? The impetus for creating a model like this is to be able to proactively measure you know, the impact of the coronavirus pandemic on different real estate markets. One of the major difficulties we have as real estate investors is being able to predict how certain assets and markets will perform before that performance is publicly discernible. So we aim to create this model this COVID-19 metro analysis model uh, using historic, current, and future predicted data measures. And when I refer to current, future, and historic, uh, historic as in uh, measures of employment, current as in measures of the severity of the COVID pandemic in particular metros, and future as in uh, the ability of each metro to recover. Variables that all measure uh, different aspects uh, of economic performance that we would be able to use to project uh, which markets uh, would provide good opportunity and which, which markets would provide more opportunity going forward. What were some of the things that, uh, you, know, you know, given all those things that you're looking at in, t in terms of employment, in terms of industries and everything else, uh, one of the things I found, and, and by the way, I'd recommend anyone, you know, really spend some time and look at some of the charts that are included in that article, really fascinating ways of kind of looking across these different markets and doing some comparing and contrasting. Uh, but what were the, the kind of factors that you thought, you know, what are the factors that make for a city that re that is resilient or quickly resilient as we come out of this? And what, what are those areas that are going to be more challenging? So there are three different uh, categories of variables that we have looked at when evaluating uh, metro level performance as a response to the coronavirus pandemic. The first category that I mentioned was employment. So the variables that we looked at in this category include small business employment, lodging, retail, entertainment, transportation, and utility employment. These are the sectors we felt would be non-resilient. Technology, media, information, and healthcare employment. These are the uh, sectors we felt would, would be resilient. Government employment, which tends to be more cyclical and non-resilient during economic crises. Fossil fuel employment, which is another cyclical sector. The second category that we looked at was the, the severity of the COVID-19 pandemic itself. So the COVID-19 Mortality rate would, would be one variable that it fits into this category. Projected unemployment rate that was caused directly by the pandemic. The proportion of a population that is 65 and older. And the percentage change in consumer spending year over year. The third category that we looked at was post um, variables to measure post-COVID recovery. So for example, 
projected year-end 2020 uh, gross metro product growth, projected fiscal surplus or shortfall and how that affects states' budgets, the percentage of metro revenue from elastic sources, how that affects government employment, and the percentage of commercial mortgage loans classified as non-current, uh, that is really relevant to how leveraged a market is uh, from a debt perspective. And that could really have an effect on the ability of a economy to recover. So what are your concerns about debt? So let me start off by saying interest rates are low. Um, there's a variety of reasons for that. Um, low inflation, low population growth. But regardless, one of the effects is that corporate debt levels are at record highs and that commercial real estate debt levels are at record highs. In fact, this is something that's been mentioned by the Fed on, in several occasions and is something that they're watching. And so this is something that we should watch as well when it comes to evaluating how certain metros can recover from the coronavirus pandemic. What we did in our model is to look particularly at the public markets, uh, loan securitized in uh, commercial mortgage-backed securities, uh, and to look at the proportion of loans that are non-current. So this could be they're delinquent, uh, they're under servicing, they're late, they're an REO, they're foreclosed, or the most common uh, scenario right now, which would be that they're under forbearance. So this is a type of request that has become more frequent, especially uh, during this pandemic, where lenders will allow sponsors, or in other words, owners, to forego interest payments for a particular period, typically around 90 days, although sometimes it can be longer. And so the question is, once these forbearance provisions expire, which of these uh, sponsors or owners will be able to make these deferred interest payments in full and which will not? One of the things that's really going to affect this on a metro level is the level of e is the level of economic recovery in each metro. So for example, if the economic recovery is quick or it exhibits a V-shape, uh, sponsors will be able to make these deferred interest payments. If their economic recovery is slow or exhibits an L-shape, sponsors at risk of default or foreclosure. And the speed of the economic recovery in each metro, you know, for example, how quickly stay-at-home orders are lifted, the metro's exposure to high-performing industries, all the other factors we talked about could have a great effect on whether or not a sponsor will be able to make those interest papers or not. And if they're not, that could have knock-on effects on employment and other sectors, et cetera. I'd love to, you know, given all the, the kind of factors that you're looking at that you think are going to impact um, what is going to happen over the, or what to watch over the next uh, six months, 18 months and, and beyond, um, were the, the markets that rose to the top in terms of resiliency in your discussion and those that, that, that were at the bottom of the list. And I found it interesting that you had some core markets at the bottom of the list uh, that certainly are, uh, we are heavily exposed to as institutional investors. I'm thinking New York City, Chicago, potentially Miami. Um, and that in the five best, you have some of those markets that perhaps have not been highest on people's radar list, including uh, Columbus, Ohio, or San Jose, or Nashville. Can, can you give a little color around why you think those metropolitan areas ended up at the top of your list and at the bottom list based on the factors that you're looking at? So there's a couple of reasons why, for example, a major market such as New York or Chicago would perform poorly uh, when measuring the impact of the coronavirus pandemic. 
First of all, uh, when you're measuring the impact of the pandemic directly, cities such as New York and Chicago are very dense. And for that reason, they've dealt with um, very high mortality rates from the disease itself, very high case rates per capita. So that's one factor that has a negative impact on these metros. Another is that these cities were facing very significant demographic headwinds coming into the crisis. Uh, property prices were extremely high for those that were moving into the metro. And so many have moved out into other metros that provide the same employment opportunities in high paying sectors such as technology, healthcare, financial services, and offer that employment with a lower cost of living. So for that reason, uh, many people who previously uh, would have just considered living in New York or Chicago are not going to consider moving to cities that provide those employment opportunities, uh, possibly remotely. Um, but regardless, you know, with a lower cost of living, uh, such as Nashville, Kansas City, Salt Lake City, Austin. So that's one that so really it's a combination which is interesting because that is a trend that you know we have been seeing before covid came along but it sounds to me like you are, are, are believing that that covid-19 will serve as an accelerant of that of that trend yes absolutely i mean there's two aspects to the impact of the coronavirus pandemic one is the demographic tailwinds that we're seeing going into the pandemic as well and the other was that the impact it had in industries that we didn't foresee so for example you know lodging retail tourism. But it's also important to understand that that hospitality is highly leveraged. Retail was already having issues coming into the pandemic, especially compared to online retail. Uh, so a lot of these trends are ones that were occurring pre-pandemic as well. And so our view is that the coronavirus pandemic will simply accelerate stress in industries that were either highly leveraged or underperforming pre-pandemic. What are some of the things that you should be most concerned about um, when looking at particular metros? What are those things that are that, that are really red flags for perhaps a more uh, challenging period of return to uh, growth and success? So as we talked about before, uh, excess allocation towards industries or exposure to employment in industries that are very cyclical and are proven to not be particularly resilient, such as tourism, entertainment, transportation, public utilities, leisure, hospitality, retail trade, and energy. Uh, these are the sectors that will directly be impacted, uh, that see the most sudden uh, effects of lower consumer spending across the economy. And so excess exposure to these industries uh, will be particularly harmful. I mentioned density as another factor that could cause uh, higher severity of the pandemic itself. Uh, which could have an impact in particularly large cities in our country that have had demographic tailwinds coming into the pandemic. Um, however, another important thing to consider is also leverage, not just from a consumer and a corporate perspective, but also from a government viewpoint. And in, in that state and local budgets could be very negatively impacted by this pandemic. And therefore, uh, state and local uh, governments that have been incurring large deficits coming into the pandemic could be forced to cut, make significant cuts to various sectors of employment that are reliant on uh, government funding, uh, such as as related to healthcare, uh, corrections facilities, public safety, uh, and that could uh, have uh, negative effects as well 
related to lifestyle. So these are all aspects that I would look out for. Certainly, I think most people, even before the pandemic came along, were very aware of the risk and the sensitivity associated with uh, hospitality and uh, with retail. But another one that's come up and certainly is something that perhaps surprised some uh, over the last few months was energy. Can you unpack that a little bit in terms of exposure to um, uh, energy as an employer in particular regions and how you think that may play out? We observed uh, quite a lot of volatility in the crude oil market, especially in April and May. And while crude oil prices have definitely recovered over the last couple of months, it's also important to note that natural gas uh, and coal prices are at, all, are at multi-decade lows. Companies that produce or generate energy tied to fossil fuels, they're generally not well capitalized and operate in a highly competitive cyclical environment. Additionally, these companies face long-term headwinds, such as competition from renewable sources, uh, more prevalent energy-efficient technologies, lower investment from institutional and sovereign wealth funds, so for example, uh, from the Middle East, and from institutions that are now allocating more directly towards ESG funds. And also, uh, of course, due to political opposition driven by concerns related to climate change. For this reason, metros with high exposure to fossil fuel employment, such as Houston, could be negatively impacted. Houston benefits from some of the demographic uh, migration patterns that New York and Chicago are being negatively impacted by. So there are a lot of people that are moving regionally from the Northeast and the Midwest to the Sun Belt, to the Mountain West and to the West Coast. Um, and the reason is the, that cities in uh, the Sun Belt and the Mountain West and the West Coast have diversified their employment bases for the most part. There are some exceptions, uh, for example, Miami, New Orleans, Las Vegas. And those are some cities that are gonna be negatively impacted because they have such excess exposure to industries such as tourism, retail and hospitality. But Houston has done a good job of diversifying its economy away from energy and towards sectors of the economy that are growing, such as technology, healthcare, financial services. With that said, about 30% of Houston employment base and economy is still based around fossil fuels. So there's definitely going to be a negative impact there, but definitely not as much as with smaller metros such as New Orleans, Oklahoma City, uh, even small towns where you drill for oil that are, you know, surround these metros. Those could see really the most negative impact, but certainly employment diversification um, has helped Sunbelt metros, um, especially compared to that of Midwest metros, which still have a lot of exposure to legacy industries such as manufacturing, uh, which you know now take place internationally uh, in places such as uh, in China and uh, East Asia. Our economy is largely reliant on service-based employment whether that be technology, healthcare, um, financial services, as I said before. So uh, exposure to kind of older industries, such as energy, such as manufacturing, such as even agriculture, uh, that's going to be a negative going forward, as was a trend pre-coronavirus. It's just that's just something that's going to be accelerated as the as the crisis proceeds. Then on the, the flip side, in terms of those are the things that perhaps people should be most concerned about, uh, what should uh, investors be perhaps most optimistic or excited about in terms of where the opportunities might lie? The opportunities are going to really be in markets that have benefited both from the demographic migration patterns that we described before and are not overpriced. So some Markets that I felt I feel would fit this category would be such as uh, Columbus, 
Milwaukee, Raleigh, Nashville, San Antonio, Salt Lake City. These markets will not see price corrections that are pronounced as that of gateway markets, but are well positioned for strong and sustainable growth post-coronavirus. There are some gateway markets that are well positioned to perform post-coronavirus, such as San Jose, Boston, and Washington, D.C., and this is because of their employment allocation. So, for example, uh, San Jose uh, is highly allocated towards technology employment. Boston is highly uh, exposed to life science, to healthcare. Washington, D.C. is highly exposed to defensive sectors, such as sectors related to government employment, um, defense, legal services, lobbying, for example. So those, those gateway markets, they're well positioned, but they're only going to provide the best opportunity after prices have fully corrected and as the U.S. economy as a whole begins to recover. So the exciting part is the cities that are not overpriced, that have allocated to our sectors of the economy that are growing, should provide the best opportunity and that we're really seeing that process being accelerated, even though it has taken place to an extent over the last decade or so. What becomes very, very clear listening to you, uh, Jay, and, and, and looking at the research that's presented in the article is that one, uh, the U.S. is certainly not a homogeneous market. You're going to see a lot of nuance and a lot of differences depending on what region you're in. And I think looking at some of the charts and some of the data that you have collected and some of the analysis, I think is essential for any investor as they look at various markets within the U.S. because there's some real swings in terms of what has been happening and what is likely to happen uh, going forward. So I think this is just a, a fantastic lens to look at our different metros and to understand what some of the risks and opportunities would be. So we've pretty much come to the end of our time here, Jay, but but I, I want to thank you for helping helping me see uh, some some different parts of these uh, of these metros and to provide some really valuable analytics, I think for for AFIRE members and others to, to begin to kind of get underneath the nuances uh, that are sitting inside these different metros. So thank you, Jay. Yep, thank you. Thanks for the time, Gunnar. To learn more about this topic, as well as other topics and issues from Nuveen Real Estate's research team, you should definitely check out Nuveen.com's real estate thinking page. Uh, some very useful insights and ideas. And before we close out this podcast, I wanted to make sure we took some time to thank our underwriters, Prologis, JLL, and Holland Partners, who make it possible for AFIRE to provide programming such as these podcasts. Thank you. This podcast is produced by AFIRE, the Association for International Real Estate Investors focused on commercial property in the United States. AFIRE is not engaged in providing tax, accounting, or legal advice through this podcast. None of the content is to be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell any asset. Some information included in this podcast may have been obtained from third-party sources considered to be reliable, though AFIRE is not responsible for guaranteeing the accuracy of third-party information. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of its respective contributors and sources and do not necessarily reflect those of AFIRE. This is Gunnar Branson from the AFIRE podcast. Thank you for listening.